Alrighty, welcome back to The Ferment, everyone. We're here again for another vintage update. I'm here with KB in Studio One again. How nice is it just to be walking back in like a COVID never happened, KB? It's lovely. We just came back from winery marketing tasting and to get all the winemakers together and a good number of the marketing team is just so good to all be in one room talking about wines again. It's great. Yeah, absolutely. And and uh, you got scared because Tom Wallace had dialed in on a laptop and he started talking to you. <laughs> out of nowhere. You, you go from being so used to having people on teams to then turning around and like, oh, we still do have someone here on teams. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yeah, so nice just to be able to do all these things in person again. And, and just the advantage of the technology that we have now that Tom can dial in through teams and chat through all of his wines that are there, give us all the background to them, give us the understanding why they're looking the way that they are. It just makes it so much better than what we used to do just flying off the seat of a an email and and, and going second hand to get to get Tom's first hand knowledge of it, of the wines is terrific absolutely Alrighty, we've got Tom Canning here today to give us our uh, vintage update and Tom exciting to have you back on the ferment Thanks for having me, Harry and yeah. KB. It's yeah. good to be here. Absolutely. And we had a catch up with Kate not so long ago and um, Kate gave us a really good insight into how things were tracking to probably about two thirds of the way through vintage, but we've sort of gotten to the last part now. So how did it all track, Tom? Good, thank you. We had the last parcel, which was orange musket and flora. That was hanging out on the vine until Tuesday came in. The juice gets filtered today and we add the yeast, so that's the last ferment that'll be running in the winery. So all the trucks have come in. And how did it look? Good. Yeah, it yeah. looks really good. Nice one. And uh, where did we end up for a total intake? So we ended up about 15,700 tonne, which was down a little bit. I think 16,700 was about where we were going to land pre-vintage. The main difference has been there. We pulled the pin on Siena maybe two picks before the end just because they got about 50 mil of rain up there just Easter Monday or something like that. So we pulled some of those and then low yields in the Yarra Valley. That sort of affected that a little bit, which Kate's probably talked through a little bit as well. That, that brought the total down a little bit. I mean, I know I'm like everyone at this time of the year, the rain that was sort of coming through at Easter, there, there was just given the wet start to the season, there was, you know, anything that was left out was probably going to be a bit of a casualty of that. Yeah, for sure. And look, we, to be honest, we got through vintage so well for mm. how wet a, a sort of summer we had and into vintage. The quality of the wines is great for what we got and it was just that those last little parcels that we just decided not to bring in. Yeah, that was all we lost. KB was just a touch late to our winery marketing tasting. Just the relaxation across the room when we first got in there and Jeff was just like going, oh man, we've got some great wines and, you know, if you if you thought about January, February and the great wines that we've got now that are in the bank, they're in the in the in the winery now. You know, you probably would have been very hard to predict that if you were thinking about it from uh, early February onwards. Yeah, you just never know with that weather and 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 the sort of possibility of that rain coming. Like after we'd had a bit, we were sort of starting to get ready for a, a really wet vintage, but we got through really well. Now, Tom, this is your first go at uh, giving us a vintage update, but I thought it'd be nice to give our listeners at the ferment a bit of an idea of your role within the winemaking team and, and some of the products that you look after. So I've been a winemaker, have my own portfolio, which includes uh, Siena, Merlot, Malbec, Albarino, Pinot Grigio, Dolcetto. I do the experimentals from up at Mystic Park that we play around with. And then on top of that, also do all the wine prep for wines going to bottling. So get all those ready, uh, which I've had Francesca here helping me do that over vintage, which has been awesome. And then I also look after the Tassie wines for Tom when they come up um, from Tassie until they go to bottle. 
and then also do all our Charmat ferments out the back for the Prosecco and sparkling Moscatos in, um, with those new Charmat tanks out the back. And you were really the main one making contact when we were working on the new packaging facility. Yeah, and that was a really good experience it's still, and still going now. We've got a state-of-the-art facility out there now, KB, and it's been a long road to sort of designing that right through to, to now sort of having it running and sort of commissioning is sort of finishing off now. It's been a great experience. Yeah, hoping that it's going to keep going well and, um, yeah, the company will see the benefits of it. We know who to call when it's not going well. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. Point of contact. Yeah. Yeah. Tom, that's a huge portfolio you've got. Do you have a favourite? Yeah, the old favourite child question, KV. Uh, it's a tough one to answer. Uh, I think, and I mightn't have mentioned there that I do Patricia Noble now. I've just taken that on from Kate, and that's a huge honour. But I think one of the first wines I took on was El Brino, and it's always been a bit of a favourite. I love to drink it, and so it's really good to make as well. Tom, I've been following your El Brino passion. You've picked up a few golds with this wine along the way, and it's also one of my favourites. Can you talk us through a bit about the wine make for this wine? Yeah, KB, it's actually a pretty easy wine to make. It's so good on the vine up at Bankstale, our vineyard up there. The fruit looks really good. It gets flavour really quickly, where sometimes you've got to hang fruit out on the vine waiting for that flavour to kick in. The flavour comes in really quickly, holds acid really well. That's probably the main reason we don't pick it too early, is just to wait for that acid to sort of get to a point where it's not going to be overtake the wine when you're tasting it. Machine harvested, comes down, we sit it on skins for maybe an hour in the press, press it off. I spit off about 15% of it into and put it into old French barriques and do some barrel ferments with it. Uh, no wild ferments. We don't want that sort of funky character. We just want that texture, a little bit of texture to it. The rest of it is just a tank ferment, nice and slow, tank ferment at 15 degrees and just basically blend those two together after, after probably three months. And it really needs any addition. Like you usually don't have to add any even acid or anything like that. You sort of just pretty much... Let, let the vineyard sing as they would say and get it into bottle it's quite easy like just go through cold stab and stuff like that and filter it it's actually an easy wine to make and that goes to show that, that you know how good the flavor and, and the fruit is it's like your children the easiest <laughs> ones are your favorites <laughs> <laughs> so true <laughs> i haven't had any easy ones yet <laughs> <laughs> and the 2022 el Brino, is it looking good and is it are you preparing it now for bottling or where is it at so the 21 is just about to go into bottle. So the 22 is all fermented. Those barrel parcels, the barrel ferments are finished and we've topped and sulfured those barrels and they just sit in the barrel shed on the lees just to try and get a little bit more flavour into there and a little bit more of that texture that we talked about. And then I'll blend those in maybe two or three months, I'll blend those barrels back into the, the tank portion and start doing some you know, filtration and stuff like that. And it'll depend on sales as, as to when it goes to bottle, but I'll have it ready and just sitting in tank uh, it stays nice and fresh in tank and we tasted the 21 today and it's uh, been in tank for, for 12 months and, and looks really good. So, yep, it'll be ready to go then. Rumour on the street is that the UK is very excited about our El Barino. Just heard that today as well in the, in, the, in the winery marketing tasting, which is great. Yeah, I'm a big rep for I reckon it's a great variety. I just love the flavour. And to me, it sort of takes cues from different, you know, it's a little bit of Riesling and it's a little bit of Pinot Green and it's a little bit of Chardonnay, like all mixed in. And I've really enjoyed, because I make it, I give it to as gifts to people and stuff like that and people you know, get onto it and they really like it when they try it. So hopefully yeah, the UK can be a good market for it. Yeah, super exciting to get the export markets so excited about our alternative varieties. Yeah, for sure. And, and that's what we were known for and, and so like we, you know, we're trying to push that to so that we, you know, going back into the UK, that we have these different varieties and obviously Tarango is having a little second wind and you know, orange musket and stuff like that, so it would be good. 
And the Albarino, like the 19 vintage that's just sort of getting to the tail end of its run, it still looks super fresh and vibrant as well. Gives gives us confidence that we can have a wine that a white wine that will not just fall over. It's got longevity uh, in behind all that beautiful flavour when it's young. Yeah, for sure. And I think some of those golds that it's picked up at the wine shows, there's the the current vintage class, and then it's in it's usually in the older one, and it really stands out. That I think that freshness for an older wine stands out. So I broached the question of the favourite child. Which one is the most challenging child? Look, Noble has its challenges, so I'm not going to deny that, but I'd say Sienna is probably the the problem child that keeps me up at night. And what makes this wine such a challenge? Like any of the, the big products, you have to make it taste basically the same every year because you've got so many repeat customers and, and they don't expect the vintage variation that if you're drinking Pinot or Shiraz and those sort of wines, you maybe expect a bit more variation, whereas those big national products or international products that they are, people expect them to taste the same every year, no matter what variation you've had in the in the vineyard, uh, whether you've had a wet vintage or a hot vintage, uh, the fruit can be fair bit different, but they want the wine to taste the same. And just in the winemaking of it, um, having to Keep an eye on all those tanks and make sure that they, you don't hit the you're going to hit the right alcohol level and sugar level and all that kind of stuff. That keeps you up at night and uh, make sure that final blend is in spec. And what sort of process do you go through in the winemaking to to get that right balance with the sugar and alcohol in Sienna? So basically, it starts with the fruit coming in thirteen and a half to fourteen Beaumet. So we want it to get ripe on the vine. It can be quite a green variety if it comes in too early. So you've got to make sure that you've you've left it get ripe enough that that greenness comes out of it. You can have a, a little hint of it and some of the early parcels will bring a bit to that to the blend, but you don't want too much. Once it comes into the winery, it goes up into the fermenters like any red wine, but it's only up there for about two days of getting pumped over because we only want just a hint of the tannin extract and the sort of phenolic extract that you would get from a normal red. We just want to hint of that in the Sienna because we want it to balance out against that sweetness and make it a really easy drinking style. So only up there for about two days as opposed to seven to ten days for a normal red. So at this stage, it's only fermented about 2% alcohol or something like that, or 3%, and then press it off uh, into a tank. And the tank has to have really good cooling capacity on there because we need to then ferment it in tank until it gets to the right alcohol level of about uh, 7.5% alcohol, between 75 and 8 and when it gets there, we turn the cooling on the tank and that lets the yeast go dormant. And then we need to make sure that we centrifuge it sort of straight away because if we leave it sit there cold, they actually still, the yeast can still tick away even though they're pretty much all dormant. It can still tick in alcohol and if you let them all sit there too long, you end up, your alcohol will keep creeping up. So get them through the centrifuge as quick as we can. Once that's done, we can, they're sort of a bit more stable and then we concentrate on the blending and getting it all ready from there. Yeah, but it's definitely that balance of that alcohol, sugar that you have to get right. And that's another thing that the customers, if you change that, the customers, you know, they're going to know. So you want to keep that the same every year. And what sort of volume in litres have we made of Sienna this year? In litres, it'll be about 1.2 million or something like that, I think, or maybe, ju- or maybe just shy of that because we didn't pick those last couple of passes. So maybe 1.1, which is up about two or 300,000 litres from last year, I'm pretty sure. Yep. I always find Sienna, it's, it is one of our bigger intakes, but it is a wine that we easily forget about that is actually like such a big wine for us. I think like historically we put so much effort behind Moscato and Moscato Sauvignon Blanc from our marketing spend and push and Sienna just slowly crept along and kept growing in sales and, and being this real sort of 
underdog, I think, because of the, it wasn't getting the support like some of these others were. And then, you know, just with the, the well, not so much now, but the Chinese market was really getting behind the Sienna and the, those fruity red wine styles. Have you done any trials with air maceration with Sienna, just given you're looking for the colour but not so much the tannins? I haven't personally, Harry. I've, like I said, because we want it to taste pretty much the same every year, I, I've <laughs> stuck very much to the recipe that I was taught of Jeff when I, I started in the winemaking office. He, he was doing the Sienna before me. I've very much stuck to that, that plan of just doing that two days because we do want a bit of that tannin to come through. And I think it's a really important part of the wine because you don't want it to taste like raspberry cordial. Like, and you, and you, you look in the, in the market now, and I think that suits it like Bilson's up in Beechworth are doing these cordials and soft drinks and they're adding little bits of you know vinegar or bitterness to it. People like that sort of balance in their, in their uh, mouth now. So I think that that really helps it to get that tannin come through for those couple of days, but we just don't want to go any longer up in that fermenter and get any more tannin than, and don't want to overpower the wine. Now, Tom, when I departed the winemaking team about this time last year, I handed over a portfolio of wines and one of my favourites was Melbeck. You've taken that on. Can you give us a bit of an update? It was a little bit of a problem child this year. A bit different in the vineyard. It behaves differently to a lot of the other reds over at um, Heathcote in the fact it just sort of sat there and didn't really get ripe. Kept checking the Beaumais and it wasn't really moving. And uh, I do Merlot as well. And the Merlot sort of just went up to Beaumais and picked it and it was all, all good to go. But the Melbeck really sat out there and uh, Sean and I went over there and, and had a bit of a look at it and it just wasn't moving and we and it and it only went up a little a uh, little bit after that in Beaumais and we sort of picked it. So the pulp of the Melbeck is quite different to the other varieties. It stays quite green, but the skin sort of, they thinned out and looked like it was ready to go for picking. But you sort of could tell tasting it, you're on the edge. And I think you would have known that the last couple of years. You sort of, you've really got to sort of just back yourself in when you pick it. Whereas the other ones, <laughs> you, you really know, like, whereas you sort of have to make a, okay, I think this is going to look good when it gets into the winery, but it doesn't quite look ready on the vine. And that was a bit like that this year. Uh, oh, but I've it, got this mental picture in my head of Tom and Sean walking into the Malbec block and going, now ripen up. Yeah. <laughs> Just giving it a really stern talking to. Yeah. We're actually, we're actually uh, driving around in one of those uh, the dual-wheel gators. Oh, yeah. So, uh, yeah, we're hitting through those with all spiders and webs and that going all over <laughs> us. And uh, we're on our way back from – we've been up to Mystic Park on the same day. So, yeah – Yes, we were a bit the same though. We were just and we were looking at it and I'm in an ring, but um, it looks really good in the wine. The, the colours from Heathcote this year are really, really good, and it, that's the one thing that blew me away of, of just beautiful colour, like really rich sort of intense colour. It'll be in that easy drinking style, you know, in the low thirteens alcohol. So yeah, it'll be it'll be really good, I think. It's yeah. interesting just on colour. I don't know if this has anything to do with grape colour and autumn leaves, but I was talking to one of the local Millowa old guys the other day saying that the autumn leaves haven't started turning uh, that early this year, that it's, there's actually a bit of a delay in the colour change. And the story was that because we've had such sort of a nice amount of rainfall that none of the trees have stressed and because of that they're holding their chlorophyll in their leaves for longer. So I don't know if there's any correlation between that and sort of the vines just not being very stressed so they've actually been out of build up those anthracinins that create the colour. But, yeah, as you mentioned that, I'm just like, ooh, I wonder how these could potentially be connected. We're probably getting into uh, – I've forgotten a lot of my wine science stuff from beauty, but uh, – <laughs> Don't need it anymore. Yeah. <laughs> Whereas, uh, I mean, all the stuff about, like, yield, berry size, uh, all that kind of stuff, I imagine, comes into it too. And then, yeah, like, the just the, the levels in the of the anthracinins in the, in the grapes – 
comes through. But yeah, I'm sure there's a lot of moving parts to it. But yeah, this year uh, we're just doing a tasting of Jeff's IB Shiraz the other day and just the colours were just beautiful. Like Not so much just how dark they are, like it's just a beautiful sort of hue to, to them and um, yeah, really good. Now, Tom, uh, when we caught up with Kate last time, she was saying that there were still a couple of Patricia parcels, Patricia red parcels to come in. Have you had a chance to try those? And what do you think the quality is looking like for 2022? Yeah, I tasted those with Jeff the other day and looking really good. Like Simon's Cabernet came in the same time. They sort of came in last week and they're pressing, the last of them are pressing uh, in the next couple of days. So just about to finish ferment. Same thing, really, really nice colour. Good intensity, good good um, flavour. So the Dinning Shiraz, which is a local Shiraz grower that um, is always in the Patricia mix, that looked really good too. Good, yeah, good intensity. No, I think it's it's going to be a good year for Reds, I, I think, yeah. Uh, fantastic. And as again Kate predicted, the Musket of Alexandria did end up overtaking Prosecco as the greatest intake into the into the winery. And just in my hot little hand, I've got the, uh, the numbers here in front of me. And Musket of Alexandria, just over 5,000 tonnes, and Prosecco at four and a half, basically. So close. <laughs> very close. But... Two thirds of our intake for two varieties, pretty much, is is quite incredible and amazing to see the the growth of prosecco from where it came from in two thousand and eight to now is just unbelievable. I guess you know, given that, you'd be probably pretty happy you're not looking after those two behemoths in your portfolio. Yeah, for sure. I actually for two or three years I helped Jeff with prosecco. I used to write up all these sheets and everything for prosecco when I first came in the winemaking office. And I know how much of a big job it is. It is just so much fruit coming in nonstop, and you're managing all these ferments. You've got to find tanks for it all. Try and keep. And some years, like say when the smoke happens, you've got to keep parcels separate, or you want to keep your limited release parcels separate so you can't put them all in together. It's just a huge log- logistical task to keep all those wines coming in. So those guys, uh, Simon doing Gordo and Jeff doing Prosecco, they do a great job. Think about Jeff having the IB coming at the same time as Prosecco. So probably even more work, even though it's such little tonnages because he's got to do so many different styles of ferments and different styles of wines at the same time. You can see why, you know, you're talking about Jeff looking nice and relaxed when we were, <laughs> we were having the tasting today because, yeah, that part of it uh, is done done for him because, yeah, certainly at the start of vintage when that's all happening, they're, they're so busy and, like I said, doing it doing it for a couple of years with Jeff, I sort of know how much work is involved. And it's the vineyard visits too. Those guys have to get up to all those vineyards with Sean and check the fruit and then that takes you away from the winery when, when you're at your busiest time too. So, yeah, it's a lot to do there. And then also on the list in number three is the Siena that you've already spoken about. So it's right up there at uh, just under 1,500 tonnes. So an incredible intake as well. So how do you go coping with that? There's a bit of sort of skill to it, I suppose. Like I said, that that one's not as bad as those other two products. So I'll probably get it a little bit easier there. But you've got to manage things like if the Siena's ready to come in, but the Gordo is still coming in, which is the Moscato grapes are coming in at the same time. We can only bring so much fruit from the Murray Valley down in a day. So you've really got to weave it in the same week together to make sure that you're both getting the Sienna and the Gordo coming in because you can't just leave the Sienna out there and let it get to 15 or 16 Beaumont, like overripe. You need to bring it in. And so, and, and obviously we have Sean and Claire there who are sort of organising all that and, and they're really good like that. They can come up with a plan and we just sort of sit in there and work it out. And yeah, that's probably the main, the 
getting it into the winery is probably the main thing. And then having the room to put it like this is the fullest the winery I think has ever been since I've worked at Brown Brothers. So trying to fit it in all the tanks at the end and uh, some funny conversations going in the winemaking office. Uh, <laughs> if, you, if you get a hint that there's going to be an empty tank available, usually we all dart off to our office and see who can write up a job into it first <laughs> and uh, take it on it. So, um, yeah, that, that becomes hard as trying to fit it all in the winery. And you mentioned before about the new packaging facility and the management of the Charmat tanks. Can you tell us a bit about how the Charmat tanks work? They're a pressure vessel, the tanks, and so we pump base wine, whether it be Moscato, Prosecco, Devil's Corner, Sparkling, any of those products in with yeast. If they're dry like Prosecco or Devil's Corner, they get sugar added as well so that the yeast have something to eat. If they're a Moscato, they've already got enough sugar, so we just add the yeast. Once the, the yeast get going and, and eat that sugar, they, they produce uh, CO2, and because it's a pressure vessel, that CO2 builds up and then it's basically all that CO2, once you turn the coil to zero, once the ferment is finished, that all soaks into the wine and you end up with a sparkling wine in tank. And then it runs through, we have a cross-flow filter that's specially designed at the back that handles it under pressure and it'll get filtered. And then basically we top up the chemistry work for it, get it ready for bottling, and then it'll run straight down the bottling line from there. And that would be one of the big juggles for your role within the uh, over the vintage period is that the packaging line doesn't stop, the Charmat doesn't stop, so you're essentially juggling your intake of fruit with this work as well. Yeah, for sure. And I was pretty lucky this year because Francesca came on board and took on the bottling prep, um, and that was a massive help to me. And then because it's not – so the really busy time getting stuff ready for bottle is sort of June through to November – which works out well that it's a bit quieter over in bottling this time of the year. So that was I was able to sort of um, concentrate a bit more on vintage and bringing the products in as we move forward. And hopefully, you know, like Prosecco keeps growing, it'll be a juggle to just to do those those things over vintage. But yeah, I think we should have a good procedure down pat, and, and that should make it easy. And just on the Charmat tanks, Tom, when they build up their pressure. Does it ever get too much for the tank? Like, because you're sort of looking for a certain amount of pressure for a particular style of wine. If it gets too much pressure, does it have like a release valve that'll let some out? How does that work? Yep, exactly right. Harry has a release valve on top of the tank, and we set in the system, and it's really cool. And I'm looking forward to everyone being able to come on site a bit more and be able to show some people around at the back there because it's quite interesting. But we actually set the grams per litre of CO2 we want in the finished wine. And it uses the old sparkling wine graph of pressure versus temperature to work out what pressure it needs to be to get that result at whatever temperature the tank is at. If it goes over that level, it opens a vent up itself and lets the lets it out. So, huh, um, yeah, so you can't they're, – they're rated to a certain pressure, which is a fair bit above what we use them at. But, yeah, they vent off so that they, d- they would never get to that, that pressure. Are there any trials that you worked on over this vintage period that you'd like to talk to us about? came from a workshop we did with the brand managers last year, I think it was. I think I had Marcel in my group and because I do uh, what was 1889 Merlot, which is now Origins Merlot, talked about whether we could do wild ferments on a large scale. So I wild fermented a parcel, a big parcel of Merlot and I've kept that separate just so that in post-finished tasting we can have a taste and especially with the talk of Heathkit going maybe organic and all that kind of stuff, you know, could we not even add yeast to the wine, you know, really try and sort of play off that sort of minimal intervention winemaking. So did that. We had a, a new machine that was a possible RDV replacement come in to filter some Gordo juice. 
So we're always trying to test equipment over vintage. Yeah, they were probably the two main ones that I worked on. Yeah, but the other guys would have had a couple each as well. So we usually get together before and after vintage and we talk about what we're going to trial and then and then we have a sort of a roundup, which we haven't had yet after vintage. And what is day-to-day for you at the moment, Tom? Where are you up to? Do you think you might get some time off in the next little while? Well, I actually had a couple of days off for school holidays, so so Maddie could go to work, and that was nice to to sort of uh, not be out for out here for a couple of days. So we're sort of we've we started blending really because there's some products that need to be out on the market really quickly. So we've started looking at so Pinot Grigio, Pinot Gris, those sort of products. We've started allocating some of those wines. Yeah, Jeff's Pinots uh, going into barrel. So there's a lot of stuff going into barrel, and I've got a few products going in there as well. Just, yeah, fil- starting to look at filtration, tasting your wines. We've got post-finish tasting coming up where uh, we have sort of usually Ross and John and Dean and the winemaking crew all get together and taste all the wines. And so you, you sort of want to make sure that people are tasting a good representative of your samples so you sort of get them ready for that as well. Yeah, so they're the main things we're doing at the moment. Yeah, talk about wines quick to market at BizCap's meeting yesterday. The the Orange Musket and Flora was due for release on the 1st of June and Jeff goes, well, it's just come in today. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, oh, it yeah. might be a bit tight. <laughs> I yep. did like the question was still floated though. So could we still do the 1st of June? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see. Yeah. <laughs> Jeff goes, just leave it there. I'll see what I can do. He's yeah. a miracle man. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think the, when the original email came out, he's he just – pipped in a quiet little one-line reply saying, uh, yeah, the fruit is actually still on the vine, so we'd probably be early to be talking about bottling it yet. All righty, Tommy, that has been an excellent catch-up and wrap-up of Vintage 2022. Congratulations. It's a a massive effort to get through something like that, and and thank you so much for giving us your time today on the ferment. Now, just as a little side note, Cam Miller gave you a little drive-by clip in relation to your NFL team when he was on doing his interview. Any clips back in his direction? Oh, well... I mean, I like the underdogs, and I'm a, I'm a Bulldog supporter in the AFL, and they're the big underdogs. The Detroit Lions, who I brag from the NFL, are massive underdogs. They've never won a Super Bowl. And just to say how they're going, they had a quarterback that was a number one draft pick for 10 years, and he was, wasn't bad, but all the supporters were like, oh, he's no good, we'll never win a Super Bowl with him. They traded him last year to the Los Angeles Rams, and they won the Super Bowl the first year he was there. <laughs> so that pretty much sums up how the Detroit Lions are going. Uh, but what I will say is that uh, you enjoy the highs a lot more if your team has a lot of lows. And uh, for Cam, like it's pretty easy to come in and pick the Patriots who have like been the best team going around. Uh, it's pretty easy to come in and pick the best team and start supporting them. So like I'll I'll enjoy the highs when they come for my L- team. Low hanging fruit, Cam yeah, Miller. Exactly right. <laughs> yeah, cherry picking, I believe they call it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. All right, Tom. Thanks again, and uh, we'll catch up with you soon. Awesome, guys. Thanks for having me. good was that everyone if you have any feedback for us at the ferment please send us an email the ferment at brownfwg.com.au also don't forget to check out our tasting note podcast thanks for listening to the ferment everyone stay safe out there chase hard look out for each other